The Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast with Brian Moon and Laura Militello. This podcast series brings you interviews with leading NDM researchers who study and support people who make decisions under stress. Welcome to the Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast. This is Brian Moon from Perigene Technologies. And I'm Laura Militello from Applied Decision Science. We're pleased to be talking today with Gary L. Klein. Gary received his BA in psychology and his PhD in cognitive social psychology. He is a senior principal scientist in cognitive science and artificial intelligence at the MITRE Corporation, where he has worked for nearly 30 years, focusing primarily on how people acquire and use information in domains including emergency response, air traffic management, and intelligence analysis. He has led projects about using forecasting models that generate graphical depictions of decision spaces to improve decision makers' option awareness under deep uncertainty, designing a collaborative option awareness for joint action or co-action process to provide emergency responders with something beyond situation awareness, and generated a framework for evaluating collaboration. In 2015, Gary and Miter served as hosts for the 12th International NDM Conference. Welcome, Gary, and thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Right. So, Gary, uh, I want to ask you, uh, and I'm kind of making an assumption here, but I think it's true. Uh, as, a, as a sort of classically trained cognitive and social psychologist, uh, tell us how you got engaged with and, and have been engaged with NDM over the years. Um, so I've always been, even before I knew the term naturalistic decision making, um, it's been my inclination to focus on uh, decision making in natural environments. So even when I did my dissertation, which was on heuristic influence on decision-making, um, my focus was on the fact that um, much of the literature at that time, um, and this was back in the 1980s, oh, so long ago, um, that uh, they were conducted in laboratories and the, the um, in, in uh, environments that were um, very simplistic, and uh, did not provide people with anything like um, the normal context they'd get when doing decision making. So if you're looking at outcome feedback on how people make decisions and their confidence in decisions over time, when all they have is outcome feedback and they have no context for the decision making um, itself, no um, elaborate scenario that uh, provides them with some other basis for uh, determining whether um, um, advice or analysis is correct or not. Um, that might lead to out, that might lead to results that are really not really representative of the way things work in the real world. So even back then, um, in my dissertation, I tried to uh, my my work um, involved providing a a lot more elaborate kind of uh, scenario engagement uh, for the participants in the experiment that would um, give them um, additional basis for the information that they were getting and, and uh, might influence the way they used it. And it turns out they did. It turns out that uh, I was able to construct environments where the uh, analyses people received uh, were counterintuitive and others where they were not. And um, they um, responded to outcome feedback very differently when they were in a counterintuitive kind of environment than when they were in an unconflicted one, for example. 
And uh, so that was uh, um, uh, 40-some years ago. Um, and uh, more recently, um, uh, I came in contact, I think the first time was um, around 2004 or so that we met um, um, at, a, at a meeting uh, downtown Washington, D.C. in the conference room about uh, software tools and so forth. Um, that was the first time, the first actual NDM conference I remember attending was in 2011. And I had the um, um, uh, chutzpah, as we say, <laughs> to present a paper on providing what I called an option awareness basis for naturalistic decision making. And um, our focus on option awareness was to go beyond situation awareness, as Micah Ensley had described it. Um, to, to illustrate how in complicated environments, either due to uncertainty or the multitude of factors involved, um, people needed um, help with understanding how all those factors came together and played out over some range of plausible futures in order to be able to compare, adequately compare one option with another. Um, adequately discriminate what factors led to better versus worse outcomes, and ultimately to be able to create uh, new options. And we showed how this was an extension of uh, a lot of the work at that time that had been that was being done in naturalistic decision making. Right. So there's a lot there. Um, yeah. I, I do want to get back to the uh, uh, option uh, awareness space, but I, mm -hmm. I want to kind of go back and and you kind of mentioned you know you're doing your dissertation and. Uh, and you sort of realized that the, that the paradigm, if you will, at the time was, was, was fairly simplistic mm -hmm. tasks and contexts. Yeah. I'm just wondering if, uh, if there was sort of any insight that you had back then, or, or was it uh, you know, someone's guidance that, that offered that alternative view, or, uh, or did, you, did you sort of figure it out on your own that uh, the, the simplistic approach was just not going to work? That's a good question. Um... It really came from my own um, um, applied orientation. Um, mm. I was um, never really all that interested in, in totally basic um, uh, research in psychology. Even being a cognitive social psychologist, which is all about how people situate themselves in the world, um, how they see the world, um, how they think the world sees them, um, is a more of a, an applied uh, kind of psychology than, than other form, forms of uh, experimental psychology. And so um, I um, had always been interested in, um, in uh, kind of that applied aspect of things. Um, and so when I looked at the, at the research that had been done out there and realized um, how these environments had um, oftentimes very little ecological validity. Mm -hmm. I uh, really thought that uh, I needed to demonstrate how that uh, interacted with, um, with some of the more typical um, uh, experimental manipulations that we did. So it, it, it grew, if you will, out of, out of sort of your looking at the, the basic research paradigm in terms of running experiment in the lab and, and just not fitting with what you wanted to accomplish with the research? Yes, but, um, you know, I didn't, you would think that would drive me to doing field experiments. And yet, right. I, I've always liked um, um, 
uh, tried for a kind of intermediate type of, of situation, uh, wanting the control that the laboratory gives you, but trying to provide an environment uh, for research um, that is more ecologically valid, that has the right elements of the real world in it, um, so that um, it, it, be, it is something that can be generalizable and applied in the real world. Right. And so you've, it seems like you've sort of walked a fine line there. Yeah. Uh, have, have you, um, uh, as you sort of think back over your work, would, uh, did you ever sort of feel like one side was, was sort of drawing you in uh, more than the other? Or, or, or were you always looking for this sort of middle road and in uh, trying to satisfy sort of the, take advantage of both of the uh, approaches? I've always been uh, walking this this middle road, um, always yeah. with a, a, an ultimate focus on the applied, but um, in uh, 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 trying to, like I said, um, take advantage of the the more uh, structure and control that that uh, you can get in in the laboratory, and you know now nowadays we have um, simulations, even artificial reality. That we can use that uh, provides quite a bit of the of the reality um, and the factors in the real world, um, while still being able to maintain uh, more of a, a control over the experimental elements. And that's always intrigued me. When I when I first um, when I left uh, after my dissertation, um, again I was interested in uh, application, and one of my first uh, major jobs was um, not in decision making actually, but in uh, education. And uh, my interest was in applying what I had known about cognitive social psychology and the way people learn, the way people uh, make decisions, um, to using computers uh, for improving instruction. And um, I did that for about eight years. Uh, that was before I came to the minor corporation. I didn't know that. This is news. Yeah. Yep. Um, so, what what kind of role is that? I was the um, um, director of educational computing for the seven community colleges of Dallas County, Texas. Hmm. And when I started out there, um, the only use of computers they were using was for teaching computer programming. Um, right. And even that was using um, terminals um, at the local community colleges connected to a mainframe um, that was at uh, one of the centers, one of the main uh, technology centers um, in support of the schools. And uh, they brought me in to try and figure out how they could do better than that. And by the time I left, we were using um, computers in um, English departments for teaching writing, um, in the math departments, in the art department. Um, they uh, were big resistors in the beginning, but when they began to realize, and I showed them how they could do graphic arts with computers, they went crazy. Um, and so that was a big adoption of theirs. So we were using it uh, pretty much across the um, um, entire spectrum. And in fact, we built a artificially intelligent intake system that would allow um, students when they were registering for classes to fill out a bubble form and uh, having read the bubble form we could then um, suggest to them all kinds of support systems and agent and, and uh, uh, departments uh, within the community colleges um, that could help them um, um, with their learning uh, help them do better um, um, 
uh, everything from um, financial assistance to uh, child care assistance to all the kinds of assistance um, that uh, uh, the community college has provided. 30 years later, they're still trying to figure out how to do that, I think. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, yeah. the community colleges did a good job, um, actually, in uh, actually helping people succeed at college, um, more right. so than your uh, four-year schools do. So you, so you went from there then directly to MITRE? Is that the path? I did. Um, okay. I did go from there to MITRE. Yeah, so, so tell us a bit about MITRE, just sort of generally uh, this concept of the FFRDC and, and, and how MITRE works and then kind of the roles that you've, that, that MITRE plays in the world and also the ones that you've played at MITRE. So, you know, talking about this in-betweenness, uh, MITRE plays this kind of in-between role too. Um, we like to talk about it as a neutral broker. Um, and it um, um, fills in this role somewhat between um, academia um, and industry and the uh, uh, government. Um, and what, it what we do at MITRE is we try to bring our expertise to bear um, to help the government um, acquire and use um, sophisticated technology uh, for uh, doing their job. Um, started out a long time ago looking at uh, radars and uh, uh, being able to uh, help the, help the uh, uh, de Department of Defense um, use uh, defensive radars. Um, and now we um, are, um, I think we have seven FFRDCs and we support uh, Health and Human Services. We su still support the Department of Defense. We support the Federal Aviation Administration. Um, so we, we uh, run the gamut uh, in uh, the, the things that we do for the government. And how about you? How about what, what sort of roles have you had there? So uh, I joined um, early on a, uh, a technology center at MITRE, um, which is uh, uh, focuses on um, providing experts to the rest of MITRE, technical experts to the rest of the of MITRE, uh, to help um, all these different organizations which have direct connections to the government, um, um, provide uh, uh, technical information and, uh, uh, in their work. And uh, so many of those organizations have uh, domain experts. So if you're working for the FAA, these are people who know a lot about air traffic control. If you're working for the DOD, they know a lot about the military, but uh, they may not have any deep knowledge of cognitive social psychology or cognitive systems engineering. Um, machine learning um, and uh, data management. Um, all of these are ki kinds of things that the tech centers have experts in and flexibly can supply those to the rest of uh, MITRE. And so um, in the tech center, um, I've worked for um, virtually all of the FFRDCs at one time or another, um, applying these ideas about decision-making and option awareness to a, a wide variety of, um, of applications. So Gary, I wanted to ask, I know you in your work have thought about um, cognitive performance, both at the individual level and the collaborative level, and many people just study one or the other, teams or individuals. And so I wondered if you could uh, maybe give us an example and kind of explain the, the value of really looking at both levels. So there, a lot of our sponsors, um, the work is, is um, that the, that their operators do, or the the people who say that, um, where the rubber meets the road, um, 
there is a there is a individual level and a team level and a broader organizational level um, um, that has to be that that all have to have some degree of of option awareness. Now I see everything in terms of option awareness now that we coined that term. Um, but the um, so for example with um, air traffic control, there are individual air traffic controllers that are responsible for ensuring um, aircraft safety and ensuring that there are no conflicts between aircraft in a particular piece of the airspace. Um, and uh, they then, uh, and so they have an individual job to do um, and ha their decision-making has to be supported at that individual level uh, for them to be able to uh, maintain that level of safety. But very quickly, they have to hand off those aircraft from their space to the space being controlled by the person next to them um, who's controlling the next space over. And all of these spaces, by the way, are really cognitively constructed because they're constructed to make um, the job that that individual has to do uh, cognitively tractable, that they can actually maintain um, the safety amongst the aircraft in their space by keeping that space not too complicated, but not so simple that it impacts um, the uh, movement of aircraft. In any case, um, they quickly have to hand that uh, those aircraft that leave their space off to the person in the next space. So they have to understand what that next person needs in order to be able to manage their space as well. And these spaces then get get added together. They become a a whole. Um, these sectors come together and, and, and become a whole region. Um, and then there are people who manage that region at this next level up. Um, they've got to, uh, but instead of f focusing on individual aircraft, they're now focusing on flows of aircraft, and they're called uh, uh, air traffic flow manager. Um, and then those regions get all, ultimately into a uh, conglomerated into an entire center, and those centers add up to the entire airspace over the United States. Um, you can see a similar kind of situation in the military as well, where you go from the individual soldier to a platoon, to a brigade, to a battalion, and on up. And each of those is being those levels is being uh, managed um, at a, um, a different level of abstraction, and the information has to flow from the lowest level of abstraction of that individual soldier, all the way up to, um, let's say, the, the a core level. Um, where that person has to make sense of a broader area over a broader period of time um, with all the information that bubbles up from those soldiers down below. And it's not simply adding it all up. It's a matter of translating and transforming that information from one decision-making um, level of abstraction to another level of abstraction. Um, this has fascinated me um, um, since the very beginning of my work. And it is... Um, one of the, the, the areas, this movement of information from one level to another, from one person to a level, another is a, a place where mistranslation and errors often occur. Um, and um, it is also a place where there is a lot of, of cognitive labor that's needed in order to be able to do those transformations and translations. And so my work um, um, has always been focused on using computers and automation to try and help with that process 
uh, both for the individual and then as that information moves from one individual to another and then to the larger group. So this is so interesting. I have not worked in the space you're describing, but it makes me think of some other um, work I'm doing um, in healthcare, where we now have these pervasive electronic health records. And so a clinician um, in the old days might walk down the hall or make a phone call, but now they can put this into the health record and kind of tag someone else so that it'll show up as an alert for them. And one of the things they're finding is that just because you put it in the record, that's not the same as communicating it. You don't really know if that other person received it. If they had a question, it's not easy to get back to them. And so I'm just wondering if you're, you're exploring similar issues that, that, that just documenting something in a computer is not the same as actually communicating it. Yes, um, I have. Um, not on electronic health records, although MITRE is doing a lot of work on electronic health records and finding the problems that you have just described. Also that, um, just like in the, uh, in the organizations I described, um, people at one level in the organization they need different information from that health record than people at another level of an in the organization. So the individual nurse or doctor that's attending to the individual patient, um, it's important for them to have a certain kind of information. And the, the um, doctor who is uh, running that, that particular part of the, of the hospital uh, may need not just, again, aggregate information, but a transform of that information that allows them to understand the options that they have uh, for supporting um, the activities going on down at the individual level. Um, this, this work that we did on a collaborative framework that we did called the Collaborative Evaluation Framework um, uh, focused on um, the um, collaborative behaviors that are needed, if you will, that allow us to do what you're talking about, which is to actually um, um, uh, communicate uh, better um, between us. Um, and many of our systems that we call collaborative systems don't actually accomplish some of those behaviors. So one of those behaviors is alerting. Um, how do I get the attention of somebody that I've got something important to say to them? And then how do I convey that information to them uh, once they're alerted? Um, um, how do I know? Um, one is, is simply um, um, uh, identification. How do I know who to send the information to? Who's supposed to receive this information? Um, I know that uh, in, uh, and this was years ago, um, that when um, um, I, uh, my daughter was actually in the hospital and we noted how um, information had to be moved from one uh, system to another. And again, that's where errors tend to happen. So, you know, you want to prescribe a particular drug, and then you have to take it, you have to go, the nurse had to take that information and put it into the pharmacy system, and then the pharmacy system had to produce the drug. It, it just was very, um, um, lent itself <laughs> to a lot of errors. And so the, um, I'm, I'm hoping that the electronic health records are going to help us do a better job of that. But as you're saying, again, um, information is different information is needed uh, by different people at different levels um, and different jobs uh, within the organization and all of that something ha somehow has to be triggered by the information we put into electronic health record that translation and transformation can be done by artificial intelligence sometimes but oftentimes it has to be done by people and you have to provide them with the means for doing it 
Definitely. And I was kind of circling back to the things you were talking about in terms of, of cognitive fidelity or realism uh, in the design process. So if you just focus on the most routine kinds of conversation, it's maybe easy enough to develop a system that that supports humans in communicating. Um, but, but it's all those corner cases when something weird happens, that's where those systems fall down. Oftentimes that's true. But oftentimes um, the, there is a failure to understand this need for translation and transformation. Uh-huh. And oftentimes what we get is simply aggregation of the information from down below to um, the next level up. I remember in a situation uh, with the military, uh, we were discussing with people, um, you know, those that are working um, in military communications, and down on the front line, they're trying to keep the, um, so the uh, computer servers up and running and they can tell you, you know, uh, the likelihood of failure of this particular computer system and what the probability will be that it'll be online, et cetera, et cetera. And oftentimes, so up the general gets this information saying, you know, we, we can guarantee you a 90% um, uptime. But the general doesn't care about that. The general cares about when I've got this particular um, um, platoon headed to this particular location, are they going to be able to maintain communications or not at this time in this place? And um, so this 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 um, communications-oriented information about the computer and whether the computer's up or down doesn't matter to the general. Is there another computer that's going to be able to compensate for this one when it's down? I need to know, are those guys at that time going to be able to communicate? That's what I'm interested in. And so there has to be a translation that goes on. Um, in order for them to make a decision at their level. Yeah, very interesting. This is such an important perspective. So Gary, you've mentioned uh, uh, a yes. couple of frameworks already. You mentioned, uh, the, the I mentioned the, the co-action framework that you uh, came up with. And, and you mentioned yes. that we first met in around 2004 when we were trying to come up with kind of a, a big framework for how do you evaluate the effects of software tools on individuals and and teams working in the area of intelligence analysis, which has many of the challenges that, that we've already been talking about here. Um, but I'm, I'm interested in sort of your your history of kind of developing these big frameworks and, and sort of putting out these uh, abstracted understandings of a domain so that people who are developing tools and developing other kinds of solutions can consider uh, how effective they're being, or perhaps even in the design stage, how effective they might be by sort of looking at these uh, frameworks that tell us about how work uh, needs to be accomplished in these different different domains. And I'm just kind of curious to get your perspective on, on these the frameworks you put out, the processes, where have you seen these kinds of things take hold? That is, you know, people start to pick them up and use them in different ways, uh, or even, you know, where have they met resistance? And so people might push back either on the framework itself or even just on the idea of kind of using a, this abstracted framework approach. Where, where have you seen it take hold and, and or meet resistance? Conceptually, it's taken hold oftentimes when we um, explain it to people, just actual decision makers in the field, they go, yeah, that's exactly what I want. Um, I want something that does that kind of thing. Um, for example, um, one of the, in, in the co-action process, uh, one of the things that we were looking at is the fact that um, um, there can be individual decision spaces and there can be a synergistic decision space between 
two different individual organizations. Um, in emergency response, for example, um, the police can have their decision space, which um, provides them with an evaluative um, uh, outcome um, as to how their action is going to um, affect the environment in ways that are important to them. So um, safety, for example, is very important to the police. And so if they're going to go and direct traffic at a particular location, they're there in order to make sure that they're, to reduce the likelihood that there's gonna be accidents um, in a very high trafficked area. Um, the fire department, on the other hand, that's not a big interest to them. They're interested in putting out fires, but they're also interested in getting their fire trucks to the fire as quickly as possible. Uh, any delay in getting the fire uh, fire truck to a fire allows the fire to grow bigger and requires more fire trucks and more resources to be sent. Um, of course, it allows it to do more damage while they're being delayed as well. Um, so now, where do these two come together? Um, if the if there's a traffic situation between the the firehouse and the fire, um, the fire. Uh, all by itself, um, the fire chief is going to be figuring, I'm going to have my fire trucks delayed through that traffic. I better send more fire trucks than otherwise would be the case if I had done so at 2 a.m. in the morning when there was no traffic at all. Um, the police, on the other hand, are looking at that same situation and going, you know, we've got these guys uh, that are exiting the football game. We need to send one or two uh, uh, police cars out there in order to not necessarily reduce the level of traffic, but to make sure that, that the passage of traffic is safe. Now, the interaction between these two falls into this synergistic space because the fire chief has a traffic constraint. He's having to send more trucks because there is this traffic constraining the movement of his trucks to the fire. The police now have a, have a capability to actually reduce the traffic lower than they otherwise would need for safety in order to let those fire trucks through more quickly, get to the fire more quickly, and therefore require less fire trucks be sent, leave more fire trucks in reserve, and also put out the fire more quickly so it does less damage. Neither one of them looking at their individual decision spaces recognize this synergy. They're only looking at the um, evaluating their decisions from their own perspective. But when you put the two decision spaces together now into a synergistic space, we realize that if the police simply sent one more, fire, one more police car to that traffic um, situation, wouldn't do anything for safety, but what it does for reducing traffic allows the fire trucks to send fewer fire, fewer fire trucks quicker to the fire and for the overall city results in a better situation. And so we've been looking at this and uh, one of the first uh, presentations we made on our work um, was um, with regard to this uh, synergistic uh, decision-making um, at the ISCRAM and uh, Information Systems for Crisis Response and Management Conference. Um, and uh, the point of this was that when you, when you gave them just their individual decisions uh, spaces, they didn't make very good decisions whatsoever in getting those fires out. When you gave them the synergistic decision space by itself, they made really good decisions with regard to putting those fires out. 
when you gave them all, both of them together, the individualistic and the synergistic together, they just got confused. So how you present this information and how much information you present is really important in order to be able to uh, facilitate um, effective and quick uh, decision-making. Right, so, so you really, you're sort of describing the opportunities uh, and the constraints, and you sort of started off uh, also saying that sometimes these, these frameworks yes. and just descriptions of the processes themselves can be useful to whoever's, whoever's trying to take action, whoever's trying to come up with a solution, um, which is really quite interesting because, you know, often the, the, the goal of any uh, project uh, is to sort of come up with a solution. And, and, and what you're suggesting is, is that a solution can just be a description of what's actually happening and then others can sort of orient themselves. In understanding um, how different people are under, have different comprehensions, different understanding of what's happening, there was work by Winston Seek called Cognitive Culture. And we have uh, developed um, a process based on, uh, partly on what Winston had done. Um, Winston's work had to do with um, um, uh, extracting um, mental models, causal mental models from individuals um, on how they thought the world worked or how they thought some process worked um, with the idea that um, there were groups of people um, that had different ideas, different models for how the world worked and um, how those models actually got distributed amongst people uh, was not always obvious. So uh, when he was looking at tribes, I believe, um, in uh, Southwest Asia, um, he was finding that you know, the whole tribe doesn't have the same mental model of how things work. Um, and some members of this tribe have the same mental models as members of another tribe over there, but not the same as other members of their own tribe over here. Um, and so um, what we find is that um, when you have these different mental models about how things work, um, you evaluate the information very differently from each other about what's important and what's not important. Your priorities are different. One of the things we're looking at is has been in terms of revealing um, others, other people's mental models to you so that you understand how they're looking at the world and how it differs from the way you're looking at the world in order to facilitate better communication and better joint decision making. So you're sort of extending that work then into, yeah. We have. That work and the, the approach it took of, of building directed graphs of uh, people's causal mental models um, we have um, applied some um, other work done by Osei Bryson um, in um, uh, being able to assess those graphs um, and being able to assign uh, uh, quantitative values to the edges in the graphs. Um, and in so doing, being able to turn those graphs um, into uh, computational simulations. Um, what's more, uh, we added to that work, um, work done in crowdsourcing um, and, um, and uh, um, assessment uh, to enable us to crowdsource a graph uh, to a set of experts. Um, they may be experts in different domains, as a matter of fact, to allow for different kinds of evaluations. Um, and uh, to uh, do this in a, in a way that we get a low bias estimate for all the edges in the graph with a, actually a subset of, the, of, of comparisons. 
which is also defined by O.C. Bryson um, in a set of rules. And in doing this, we call the process DSIM for descriptive to, uh, to simulation, descriptive to simulation modeling uh, uh, process. Um, this allows us to uh, take what starts out as a, uh, a qualitative model um, in a form that can be easily understood uh, by uh, um, decision makers, by people. Um, and there's research to show that by Robert Hoffman and Gary A. Klein. Um, and to take that model and then turn it into a computational model that allows us to engage in exploratory modeling with that model, work uh, based on work done by Chandra Sekharan and uh, Steve Bankies, and um, thereby generate a decision space using that model um, that is based on all the, the, the individual's understanding of how the world works. So now we have, if you believe the world works like this, we can use that and uh, take those assumptions and uh, manipulate some of them here and there in order to do some experimentation and show you what the implications for your understanding of the world. Um, and that leads to this, uh, to one level of uh, option awareness uh, in allowing us to then take uh, various options that you have at your disposal, run them through this, um, uh, operationalize them in the model by assigning different values to different parts of the model, and then allow you to be able to see how they compare with each other based on your own understanding about how the world works. We can do this very, very quickly, as it turns out, which um, uh, you know, normally simulation modeling can take weeks or months to do. We can do this in hours or days. Right, so I, I've always sort of looked at you as, as someone who's always kind of on the lookout for ways to take qualitative findings and models and quantify them uh, or in order to yes. do other things with them, whether that's, you know, to evaluate yes. or to, uh, to to learn some additional insights. That, that seems to be another one of these uh, fine lines that you've always <laughs> done a great job balancing on. <laughs> right. Um, because you, yes. I, I think you're... You're, you're someone who's who's able on the quantitative side, but also sees the the value of the insights that come with the qualitative pieces. Yes, yes. I mean, some of the things that we can see, for example, when we have a group evaluate these models, is that um, the relationship between two nodes in the model. Some may value it highly, saying yes, A affects greatly affects B. Um, others may. Um, that evaluate that model may say, no, I don't think that that is, uh, that A affects B uh, very much at all, or certainly not in the way that you're, you've got it in the model. And some may come in out in between. So you, you get this multimodal distribution of, of belief uh, in the strength of that um, relationship. And that in and of itself, even if we don't run the model, <laughs> we, if we don't actually run the simulation, but simply look at this cross-tabulation of, of evaluations uh, reveals a lot of interesting information. What is the difference between those three groups of people who, who have these three different um, assessments of this particular relationship in the model? Um, and um, uh, we've had some uh, applications of this approach where that's as far as we've gone. And that has allowed people to, again, search for um, solutions, um, options um, that um, satisfy um, 
um, the different groups that have these different opinions of uh, what that relationship is, or to recognize that nothing that they can do is going to satisfy everyone. And now they understand why, because no, everyone doesn't understand the world the same way. So, Gary, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. You are part of a um, sort of elite group of folks who have actually organized an NDM meeting. <laughs> There, there, aren't, there aren't many of us in the world. Um, and so I'm just wondering, what were some of the highlights <laughs> yes. from, from hosting that meeting in, in, in uh, the, the NDM 12 meeting? Well, the, the, the exchange of ideas um, and the breadth of ideas that we have in our MDM community is incredible. Um, the different applications from sports to intelligence to just everything under the sun that involves decision-making, um, uh, we get presented there. And um, just meeting all those people and having all those discussions um, was not just great for me, but I'm sure great for everybody that comes there and it's why we get the turnout that we get for these meetings. So that was just, that was wonderful. That's always been wonderful, part of the, part of the uh, conferences that we've had. And uh, we tried to provide opportunities as we could to um, enhance that um, um, and time for people just to get together and talk, um, not merely to um, sit and um, um, listen to uh, papers being presented. Um, and we included tutorials. Um, at the end, we, um, my partner, one of my partners and I presented a half-day tutorial on uh, option awareness and um, how you measure it and how you Struck decision spaces and so forth. Um, that was really fun. To uh, we were very interested, um, and uh, we had uh, um, time for food and talk and wine um, that also provide that kind of level of interaction. So, um, yeah, that was. It's it was always been an exciting part to participate um, in the conferences um, for that reason, and it was. Um, a challenge and uh, interesting to provide the opportunities at our own conference. Yeah, so so everything you're saying resonates with me. These are the things I love about these meetings too. And I think one of the cool things about organizing an NDM meeting is knowing that you kind of have the flexibility uh, to um, to be creative, right? It's, it's not like a, a, a meeting with a society and you know there are a bunch of academic people that need to get certain criteria, um, you know, to, to get tenure. Yeah. I mean, part, part of NDM can help you there, but, but you know, you were talking about these half-day workshops and opportunity to just talk and eat and interact. Um, that's one of the things I have really enjoyed is, is in being on the organizing committee is just, you know, kind of thinking outside the box. What, what would make this a great, a great experience yes. for everyone? Yes. And, and, um, uh, getting people from different disciplines together so that, you know, ideas about how something is done in, in a discipline that you've never thought of in your particular situation, uh, might um, um, trigger um, some ideas and some applications for your particular work. Um, I was I really love the way in which um, um, analyses and measurements were done um, with regard to the application of NDM in sports, um, which is real time, very fast, um, and um, and and that's led to some thinking on our part, you know, about how we would do the same thing with regard to. Um, um, applications in air traffic control or military or whatever, where also we've got real time, um, very fast thinking going on. And, and how do we uh, 
conduct measurements in those areas that'll give us some insight into what's happening. So that cross-pollination is just really exciting at these conferences. Yeah, I would agree. The other place I see that um, those methods from the sports uh, uh, applications uh, now are kind of morphing into law enforcement, that kind of very rapid decision-making and, and the methods folks are using in sports are, are now planning their way over to law enforcement. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I agree that that cross-pollination is, is really cool. Yep. Um, so let me ask... Um, if you had to name three people who have really influenced your approach over the course of your career, who, who comes to mind for you? Geez, that's, that's a really hard question. There's so many people. Um, you know, I'm a synthesizer, so I draw on different fields and different people. Um, Steve Banks was someone that I, um, uh, his work on doing exploratory modeling uh, was one of the, the pillars uh, for the work that we're doing on option awareness. And uh, he approached this from a uh, computer science uh, kind of approach. And um, um, the presentation of this information to people was just a, a convenient way of presenting the information. And so we started with there and said, you know, this exploratory modeling can, can provide insight into um, uh, the plausible outcomes of uh, different options is how he was applying it but we said can we look at how to do that visualization uh, better and so we looked at the work on uh, visualization and actually pushed the envelope on that since um, comparing um, distributions uh, with each other which is heavily which is involved in in, in what we're doing um, um, didn't have a lot to say at the time um, so his work was involved there, Chandra Sekharan's work um, on, on uh, modeling and simulation and dealing with uh, deep uncertainty uh, was work. Um, uh, Kahneman and Tversky, I could just name, go on and on and name a whole bunch um, that were all pillars. Um, he told a very interesting story at one of the uh, AI conferences where um, they were sitting down um, and uh, uh, in a bar and um, and uh, um, a uh, server came up to them and said, "Can I get you a drink?" And he said, uh, the per- our, "Our focus, uh, our, our goal for AI is to make something more intelligent than something that would ask someone sitting in a bar whether they wanted a drink or not." It was funny at the time. Um, <laughs> um, so. Um, but he's done work on, uh, on um, uh, simulation modeling and uh, dealing with um, uh, deep uncertainty that is um, unresolvable uncertainty in um, decision situations. I'll send you a, a reference um, we're done. Okay, thanks. Uh, yeah, but uh, his work, uh, Winston's work, uh, um, fed part of this, um, the work by... Um, Sarah Lichtenstein and, and her um, um, compatriots, um, Baruch Fischoff, I turned to them as my example of um, how to write stuff that other people can understand. They, um, um, some of the most um, um, cogent um, writing on psychology and the work that they've done did in um, decision making as well uh, has triggered it. 
as I said, Kahneman and Tversky and the work that they did on heuristics um, and uh, that, that we've, we've dealt with. Um, just there's just been a whole lot that we've synthesized together into the the kind the things that we're doing right now. Neat. Yeah. Yeah. So your kind of characterization of yourself as a synthesizer, someone who's really looking across disciplines and just pulling yes. together these disparate things. Yes. Which is yeah, another reason that's... why I love the NDM conferences because you know that's we're all about this kind of cross-discipline stuff. All right, Gary, our last question is kind of a fun one, uh, hopefully. Um, so we, we pitched this uh, question to say if you could instantly achieve expertise in anything, what would it be? Yeah. You know, my dad said to me, my dad um, um, owned a, um, a men's clothing store, a retail clothing store. And so it's all about um, supporting your customers and uh and sell, sales, uh, being able to close a sale, um, never to try and sell somebody something that they don't need because you're just going to get it back. Um, in the end, they're going to return it to you. But still, he said, in throughout your whole life, um, you know, sales is going to be important because whether you're selling yourself to get a job or you're selling the, the product that you have developed uh, to other people to get them to adopt it, um, sales you know, is, is really important. And um, so if I was to be an expertise, I would pick expertise in salesmanship, I think, something that I never achieved as, as good as my dad. Um, in particular, our area, um, um, because it's very difficult um, to sell what we're selling. Um, we call um, our work in option awareness, for example, night vision goggles for the mind because we allow people with our visualizations to see things in this decision space that they otherwise wouldn't be able to see, to see a landscape of plausible outcomes for the decisions they're making. Now, you're trying to sell that to somebody who by definition can't see it without the stuff that you're selling to them, right? And, and so <laughs> how do they know what they're seeing is real? <laughs> Um, and, and what you're selling to them is real. And you're in environments where um, in uncertainty is, a, is an inherent part of the environment. So you can't even prove it to them by saying, look, all the decisions come out right when you, fall, when you do this, because they don't always come out right when you do it. So um, it's mm -hmm. a very difficult sales situation to be in. Um, and um, we have faced this uh, with a lot of people. Um, th there's often an aha. Uh, yeah, that's exactly what I want, and I understand the fact that this is, is normally more complicated, and I know it's more complicated than I understand, and if you can give me some way of dealing with a higher level of complication, that's great, and in other cases, uh, not so much. Um, as we know in uh, cognitive systems engineering, a lot of the work that, that all of us do, um, it's very difficult to um, um, uh, uh, involve, get cognitive systems engineering involved from the very beginning of a project um, because the benefits of cognitive systems engineering come at the end of the project when the whole system is done and you're seeing how people can use the system better than they otherwise could. Well, that's a very difficult sales thing to, to engage in as well. Um, how do you convince people that cognitive systems engineering will make the system better and will make, them, make people be able to use it better? Um, when you don't have the system there and cognitively systems engineered to show them how that's going to happen. So we, we often find ourselves in this kind of catch-22 
um, uh, uh, situation, chicken and the egg situation, uh, which makes us a very different, difficult sales environment. So if I could be better at that, we can perhaps get more people to um, adopt what we're um, selling um, more quickly. And um, you know, the, the advantage to that is uh, better evidence-based decision-making in complicated environments, which right now um, in this place and in this time, we certainly all find ourselves um, in the midst of this pandemic, um, trying to convince people even to wear masks um, as they leave when they go out um, is a difficult sales job um, to do because, again, the benefits of that is not to you, it's to other people, and it's a long-term benefit, not an immediate benefit. How do we get people to see these things? So um, that's really, I, I guess, I, I go back to what my dad said so many years ago. Um, this is, is really an important uh, skill uh, to be able to obtain. That is a great answer, and I think we've all had those days when we just wish we were selling somebody underpants because everybody yes. needs them. They know they need them. <laughs> they need fresh ones all the time, and and you can just make that case a lot easier than the cases you just described. I, I can appreciate that. Well, Gary, thank you so much for joining us. This has been terrific. Uh, it's been a, a good uh, good time catching up with you, and uh, and hope to see you again down the road at the NDM yes. conferences and elsewhere. Um, and I certainly have a couple of things I know I'll be looking into uh, after this podcast that uh, that certainly piqued my interest. So. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. And uh, and on that note, uh, for the NDM Podcast, I'm Brian Moon. And I'm Laura Militello. Learn more about naturalistic decision-making and where to follow us by visiting naturalisticdecisionmaking.org.